Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to two places. Again, go with me first of all to Ephesians chapter 4. That will be our primary text for this morning. But then I also want you to look at John chapter 13. So have your finger at John chapter 13. We'll be there for a brief moment. Largely we'll be in John, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to do something for me. In one word or f- short phrase, describe f- for me, you don't have to say this out loud, but in your mind, describe for me the Christian faith. In one word or one short phrase. Just think, what comes to mind? What are, maybe even a couple different options, what comes to mind? In one word or one short phrase, the Christian faith. <clears throat> You might think, some of you might say the word grace, or maybe a short phrase like salvation by grace through faith, if you're thinking in terms of Ephesians, or the famous answer, Jesus, right? When I think of Christian faith, I think of Jesus, Um, or God sending His Son, Compassion, maybe. Well, let me ask you this. What about the word love? Think of the Christian faith. What about the word love? Most of us, I think, if, if, if I kind of have the heartbeat around here, would probably not use the word love to describe the Christian faith. At least it probably was not Many of you, it was probably not the first word that came to mind. And I understand why. Love, the word is such an, honestly, such an abused term in our culture today. In the church and outside the church. Even in this church, it is an abused term. I mean, think about the word love. How do we use the word love in our culture? We use the word, I love my wife, and in the next sentence we say, I love my tacos, right? Now we understand from context, at least, that hopefully that's a little different love in those two categories, but in our language and in our culture, love is, is abused. Love is fickle. I mean, think about how our culture at large and how TV screens and media promote this idea of love. It's fickle, it's shallow, it's weak. It changes with the wind. I love you this day, but you don't satisfy me. I no longer love you tomorrow. Love is very fickle, it's very weak. I cringe, honestly. I, I personally cringe. When I hear anyone say, unless it's someone that I really respect their um, theological understandings, and I know, so what I'm doing is those I'm attaching different definitions to the word love. But most Christians make me cringe when they use the word love to describe the Christian faith. Well, it's just about love, right? We've all heard that phrase. What's the Christian faith about? Well, it's just about it's about love. It's about loving people. 
What most people mean, though, when they say this idea of love in the Christian faith is that basically we can do whatever we want and others in love should look past me doing what I want to do. That's what love is, how love is largely described in our culture. I love you so long as it's convenient for me to love you. And if you're loving to me, then you'll let me do what I want to do. You will let me act the way I want to act. You'll let me feel the way I want to feel. We see this in the sexual revolution in our culture today. Well, who are you to tell me I can't love this person? So this idea of love is so like misused, abused, misunderstood, all those kind of things. But Jesus, however, has a very different definition of love. And Paul's use of the word love in the passage we're going to use today, or we're going to read today and, and talk about, is a very different idea of love than the, what our culture and even our own minds tend to operate on today. So what we're going to read, I want to read for us first this this passage from John chapter 13, and then we'll jump into Ephesians. But we're going to read from John chapter 13 is what we would call like an enacted parable. You guys have heard of what parables are. This is stories that Jesus tells usually to, to teach a point, right? Well, this is really an enacted parable. It's a parable that Jesus is, is teaching, but he's actually enacting it. He's actually doing it. He's showing it and displaying it. And in this enactment, we will see something much more than simply menial service. And instead, we will see that Jesus is showing us what it looks like to love, not the world, but to love the body of Christ. Okay? That's just very important. Certainly, we're called to love the world, those who are not followers of Jesus, But he's not talking about that here. He's talking about and modeling a love for God's people. Okay? Which is the same thing Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. It's not a love for the world, although however important that is, it's a love for God's people. Particularly within a covenant community, I would argue. So let's read John chapter 13. We're just going to fly through the first 17 verses here. Going to make a few comments and then go to Ephesians. So if you look at John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having, listen, having loved his own who were in the world. So he's not saying having loved the world. He's saying having loved those who were his children who were in the world. He says he loved them to the end. Okay, Keep this in mind as we read through the rest of this. He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, Listen to these words, If, you do not wa- if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. <coughs> for he knew, he, was to, he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, there's multiple things going on in this passage. One is clearly the revelation of Jesus knowing uh, of his betrayal and Judas and what's going to happen. Uh, That's one part of it. The other part of what's going on is what's going on with this interaction between Peter and Jesus and I think some self-righteousness in Peter's life that's being revealed here. But this passage, if you look at this passage and you compare it to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's interesting that in the book of John you do not have the Lord's Supper, but what you have is the washing of feet. The Synoptic Gospels, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us Jesus breaking bread and the wine and, and, what's in, and shows us something going on there in that story. And then John over here, though, doesn't tell the story of the Lord's Supper, but instead he gives, he gives a different story of a supper time. And what's happening here is these stories are not meant to be against each other. They're meant to complement each other. I think what's going on here is John is... John knows that the story of the Lord's Supper has been recounted in the other Gospels, and John's going to tell the same thing, but from a different story that Jesus does, from a different part of Jesus' life. So I think they complement each other. They, They are meant to give us the same thing, meant to display something very particular for us. I think what he gives us here in John chapter 13 is a model an example for us to follow. They've given to us a, a pattern, if you will, an example of how we are to love each other in the body of Christ. He says, if I'm the great master and teacher and Lord and willing to do this, how much more should you be willing to do likewise? The deeper point, I think, going on here with Christ that He's exemplifying for us in John chapter 13 is this. We followers of Jesus must treat each other with the same humble, self-sacrificing love 
for each other. The same humble, self-sacrificial love displayed practically daily to each other. Jesus said He loved them fully to the end. To the end. Ultimately, Jesus goes and gives up literally, like literally is sacrificed out of love for His people. And He says, so this is what's going on. Jesus is not saying, I've washed your feet you all should go do menial tasks for each other as well to show your love for each other. That's not what's going on here, guys. What he's exemplifying in the washing of their feet is that he's going to, just like he as the master teacher is humbling himself to wash their dirty, nasty feet, he's showing them physically and practically, that he's going to, as the creator of the world, humble himself to the point of death on a cross in order to not just wash their feet, but to wash their sins away. Jesus is showing this picture. It's the same thing going on in the Lord's Supper. They're not merely eating this meal. He is showing them that his body will be broken, his blood will be spilt to wash them clean. John picks up on the same thing here in the synoptics. If we walk away from John 13 going, well, we just need to have foot washings, or we just need to cook each other meals whenever someone's sick, we're missing the point. There's more going on here, and there's more than required of us if we understand what's going on in John chapter 13. This provides a central paradigm of what it means to be built up in love. And that's where we're going here in Ephesians chapter 4 today. Love is this. Laying your life down so that your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ would increasingly know the Son of God and live accordingly. Let me say that again. Love is, in this context, laying your life down so that your brothers and sisters in the body would increasingly know the Son of God and live accordingly. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4. <coughs> We're going to concentrate on 15 and 16, but I'm going to lead, read verse 11 following, like, preceding this passage to help us again with context. Verse 11, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See right there the goal, okay? See right there the goal. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, and here we go for today, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up 
in love. Let's pray. Lord, pray as we study this passage that, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. Father, that dead souls would come to life, that weary souls and weak souls would be strengthened, and Father, that our joy and delight in your ways would be increased. And Father, it's for your glory and for our good that I pray in Jesus' name, amen. First main thought for us this morning is this, we must be both confessional and compassionate people. We must be both confessional and compassionate people. We must be confessional and compassionate people. Look at verse 15. We're just going to walk right through this beginning to end. First part. <clears throat> Rather, speaking the truth in love. What's he talking about here? Speaking the truth in love. The first thing I would have you see from this passage is he is saying we must be confessional people. We must be confessional people. Listen, Paul isn't really concerned about us simply being honest with one another. I've heard this preached this way. Well, God's just saying you just need to be honest with each other. No, it's a whole lot more than that. He's not talking about just being truthful. That's assumed in this passage. It's assumed in this passage that you're actually going to be honest. The issue is, is what truth are you speaking Paul instead is concerned about us being a confessing church. And the content of this confessing or the content of this truth is what? The knowledge of the Son of God, right? That's what we just talked about. That's what he just referred to in verse 13. He says, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. What there is the truth that we are speaking of. And he's talked about this multiple times before, even in the past 10 verses or so. But we are to be confessional people. We are to be, another word I would say is doctrinal people. We are to be people of doctrine. People who have confessed beliefs. People who have solidarity to their belief system. People that, again, like we talked about last week, are driven by convictions that are defined by the scriptures. And this, this we are then to confess we are to learn these and then confess them. We are to be confessional people. Not just people who speak honestly, but people who speak honestly the revelation of God. Did you catch that? Not just people who speak honestly, but people who speak honestly concerning the revelation of God. What is the revelation of God, right? It's His Scriptures. It's His Word. That's where he has chosen to reveal himself to us. The idea here is that we would accurately and fully speak in ways that shine God's glory via his truth in all things. That we would know his truth and thus speak his truth accurately and fully and clearly. This, I would hope, would could go unsaid, but the idea here is that we are actively speaking the truth. Guys, so much of life, we just kind of let happen to us. We kind of un unintentionally do things, and then all of a sudden life presses in on us, and then we have to go, 
figure out what the heck we're going to do. But this is a, an active thing, an active approach. It's something that we are actively doing, actively speaking the truth. We're to be reminding ourselves of the truth and to be actively speaking the truth to other people. Again, if we relegate this to just being honest with each other, we've missed the point. What truth are we speaking? Well, that truth that we're speaking, understand what Paul's doing here. This speaking the truth in love is presupposing that we would be people who actually know the truth. You can't speak truth that which you do not know. Right? Otherwise, it's at best a guess. So how are we to speak truth if we do not know it? I mean, I I know that's just plain and simple, but how do we speak truth if we don't know it? How can we obey this command if we don't know it? Let alone go back to like Matthew 28 and Jesus is saying, go teach all that I've commanded. How are we to teach all that I've commanded if we don't know all that he's commanded? You can't. So he's saying speak the truth. That means that he, he's, he's, he is assuming and instructing, I guess in a sense, that we would go know the truth. We must be people who increasingly know the Scriptures. I would encourage you, based upon the context of this passage, of a couple things. First of all, make it a priority to squeeze every ounce of learning and application possible from the teaching of your pastors. Okay? I just, I don't like to say this because sometimes they feel self-serving to me or like it's glorifying me or rusty. But listen, God's gift in this passage, he's clearly said, is your pastors, for what purpose? To help you do this. To help you speak the truth in love. To help you be the kind of people. So listen, I'm just going to say it. It's crazy foolish for you to not take every opportunity you can. Like if you're in the children's ministry, listen to the podcast. Like it's just crazy for you not to. I mean, it's like stop settling for your mud pies, right? When you can have a holiday at the beach. I'm sure there's something you can give up to make sure that you take advantage of that. Here's what you have. I, I, I don't get to say this very often, but the context allows it here. So I'm just going to let it rip, okay? You're getting 15 hours or so of distilling work of the Scriptures packed into an hour. Now, if you know anything about distillation or how things are refined and kind of come down to what hopefully is a nice gym or a nice... You know, a, a nice display or a nice tasting thing. Like, like what you're getting, all right, at the very least, you're getting cliff notes, okay? Whether they're super polished or not is, a, is, is arguable or debatable. But anyways, you're getting lots and lots of hours of reading and study that all you have to do is listen to it for an hour or 72 minutes. And, and, and like, like listen, listen to it again. Like, listen to it three times. Listen to it four times. Study it. Listen. Apply it. Like you're just crazy to not do that. I'm just being honest. You're just utterly crazy. You might be sinning too. Right? Because if you recognize the gift that God has given you, 
go back and read just the verses prior to this, okay? The gift that you have in pastors and teachers. To not take advantage of that is saying what to the gift giver? I don't need it. It's not good enough for me. My time's better spent doing something else. Right? At the very least, it's just crazy. Okay? It's just crazy. Listen, we, we have tried, Rusty and I have tried to even f- structure renovation in such a way that, like, even your quiet times and your devote, like, you don't, you don't have to go look in crazy places to figure out what to do. Renovate Us comes out on Thursday. You can work through the passage ahead of time. Then you come in on Sunday, you hear the teaching of what you were studying from Thursday night, Friday, and Saturday. And then you hear the teaching. Then you can go back and study that and, and seek application and pray over the scriptures on Monday and Tuesday. And, and then you go to house gathering and you get to be built up with that passage from the body of Christ. And, and then you can take that and spend a day or two thinking about that and, and working through that. And then you get to start all over with a new passage. Like it's just right there. It's just right there. Sit down and work through that and pray through that. We, we've purposely done it that way. We don't want to have, I mean, in, in some churches, and this is good and bad, you have like five different teaching sessions. Right? you got a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, a Wednesday night, and a Thursday night men's group, and a Tuesday lunch, ladies' lunch, and all different, five different teachings. And, and that, that has its benefits too. But we've wanted to streamline and, and really maximize everything we can get from that passage for you throughout the week. So there you go. Take advantage of that. Now, what I'm, what I'm assuming in there is that you understand that the teaching is from the Scriptures, at least to the best of our ability, is from the Scriptures. And so what are you actually doing as you're learning the Scriptures? You're not learning Matt and Rusty's good thoughts. You're learning the Scriptures, which are what? It's the truth. Which is what? It's the truth. Which is what you're supposed to be doing, right? Speaking the truth in love. All right, we should move beyond subpoint one of point one to subpoint two. We must be compassionate people. We must be compassionate people. We must be compassionate people. Love, guys, love has a prominent place in Ephesians. <coughs> Chapters 1, 2, and 3. Go back and reread it. Climax is with the prayer for the readers, or for us and those in, in Ephesus, to be established in the love of Christ and a greater awareness of that divine love. That we would know the height and depth and breadth of the love of what? Of Christ. So love has a very prominent place in Ephesians. Then in the second half of Ephesians contains a series of instructions to love. And the fulfillment of this loving each other is the outworking of the apostles praying for us to know the height and length and breadth and depth of the love of Christ. He tells us to bear one another in love. To testify to the truth of the gospel in love. So this idea of love, think compassion. Think brokenheartedness for what's not as it should be. This is the manner in which the ministry, we're talking about this doing the work of the ministry, 
all of that ministry is to be done in love. But what do we tend to do? We tend to pit truth and love against each other, don't we? We tend to kind of juxtapose those things. We have this saying, well, the truth hurts. Anybody ever said that or thought that or felt that? Well, the truth hurts. I mean, the question would be, what is the truth hurting? It would probably be the better question to ask, or the follow-up question to ask. Because we think any hurt is not good hurt. Um, but truth that hurts brokenness and sinfulness in our lives is, is a good thing. But what we do is we, we kind of put the truth and the, and the uh, love, and we, we kind of make a tension between the two. There should never be tension between truth and love. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have been washed in the blood of Him and you follow Him daily, the words of the shepherd are never condemning. The words of the shepherd are never condemning. They might feel condemning, but they are for your good. They are for your delight. They are for your joy. Certainly it might speak condemnation to your sin, but you are now no longer under condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So, so here's, if, if you hear truth and it feels like you're being condemned, I would argue that, that you just don't understand the gospel. You've forgotten what Jesus has said. And that the life-giving words of the shepherd don't feel like life-giving words to you. It's not an issue with the truth. It's an issue with your heart. Now, certainly, there, people can say the truth in mean ways, in helpful ways, but just make sure that you're not recoiling to the wrong thing. Don't recoil to the truth. But the life-giving words of the shepherd, and I'm going to say shepherd, I'm saying the king shepherd, just to be clear, I'm saying Jesus' words, they are life-giving. As truth as proclaimed, should always be associated with love and never at the expense of love. Never at the expense of love. Listen, if you're trying to speak truth to someone and you're not doing it because you love them, then you're sinning. That's just, he says, speak the truth in love. Here's the deal. Most of the time when we want to speak the truth to someone, it's because we love ourselves. It's because we want them to be something that they're not that would make us feel better if they were. We want them to act a certain way that will make us feel better. It's not because we love them. It's because we love ourselves supremely. We speak the truth because we love them. And, and there is a loving of self here, but this is mostly a, a loving outward. Again, what is Jesus doing back when he's washing feet? He's loving them. Listen, this is a side note, but he's loving them and he's loving their filth. Not in a sense that he is okay with their filth, but he's loving them in their brokenness. 
and bringing and wiping the brokenness away. Right? There's a lesson there in a few moments. Guys, indeed, a life of love will always embody the truth of the gospel. Here, here's, here's the other side of this. Can you really be loving someone if you don't know the gospel to speak to them? Whether that's to your kids, to your spouse, if you're not actively speaking the truth to them, are you actually loving them? Okay? Now, obviously, that's going to be at different levels and different points of depending on where you're at in your faith journey. But think about that. Speaking the truth and love. Guys, show me a Christian who's not very loving, and I'll show you someone who doesn't understand the truth of the gospel. Many times things are done out of selfishness and prideful reasons. Which is what? Which is what? Verse 13. Human cunningness and deceitful schemes. You understand that? When I'm loving myself supremely and speaking the truth to get what will make me feel better, all that is is just verse 13. Human cunningness and, and deceitful schemes. Because you're just doing it to serve yourself. To be selfish. For your good. Which is, not, which is not the gospel. Jesus doesn't die on the cross just for his good. He dies on the cross for our good. But listen, here I get this. Confessional and compassionate living and them as necessary companions is hard. This is hard. I get it. Let me read to you a quote from John MacArthur. He says this, Speaking the truth in loves seems deceptively easy, but it is indeed extremely difficult. It is possible only for the believer who is thoroughly equipped in sound doctrine and in spiritual maturity. For the immature believer, right doctrine can be no more than cold orthodoxy, and love can be no more than sentimentality. Only the mature man, the man who is growing up in the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, is consistent in having sufficient wisdom to understand God's truth and effectively present it to others. And only he has the continual humility and grace to present it in love and in power. Listen, it's hard. It's hard. But it's what we're called to. It's the standard that's being presented. Knowing the Scriptures well and having the ability to present it in love and power. This comes from what? Maturity in Christ. Knowing doctrine and being mature in Christ. That's the only way to do this. Second point main thought here for today is that confession and compassion lead to maturity in Christ. So he says in verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So this confession and compassion, the speaking the truth in love, 
will lead to, is a part of maturing us in Christ. When we speak the truth in love, this resulting work is this maturing in Christ. Let me point out a few things to you from this part of the verse. First of all, this, believers are expected to grow in faith. Believers are expected to grow in faith. If you're not growing in your faith, if you're not growing in the knowledge of the Son of God, if you're not growing in believing and trusting Him, there's a good chance that you're not a follower of Jesus. Believers are expected. This is something that will happen. Let me read to you 2 Thessalonians 1.3. It says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. <clears throat> Just notice that Paul here is speaking of their faith is growing. And it's connected with and in the context of loving each one another in increasing fashion. Growing in faith, guys, does not come with age. It does not come with sentimentality or just feeling better about Christian things. Growing in faith comes with knowing the Son of God and learning and loving that truth and trusting in Him based upon what He has revealed Himself to be. Kind of a second thought here is that believers are expected to grow in the knowledge of God. I just kind of said that, but I want to make it explicit. Believers are expected to grow in the knowledge of God. Again, understand the broad, a little bit broader context here. We just talked about growing in the knowledge of the Son of God, but let me read you Colossians 1.10. He says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, this is what we just talked about in Ephesians, growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. Listen, some of us have, and, and I've even put myself in this category many times, some of us have such weak faith because we have so little to have faith in. Faith is knowing and believing that. Believing the truth is as if you'd seen it with your eyes. How do, how do you build faith? It's, it's, it's that truth being more filled in. It's, it's being more glorious. It's being more, more precise, more accurate, bigger. This knowledge of the Son of God that is in increasing fashion. If you only have this much truth to have faith in, then, then that's all the faith that you can have. But as that builds, your faith gets bigger. As we have faith, we have we should not have so little things to have faith in. Now again, I'm not talking about the cute sentimentalities that get you through when life is really hard. I'm talking about the faith that drives your obedience and maintains your joy every single day. The same that Paul has said in other letters would be true even in here is that some of us stopped learning at the milk and have not been able to move on to weightier matters of the faith. We're expected to grow in the knowledge of God. It's very tightly related to faith. Let's move on. This growth that we're supposed to grow in is, is comprehensive. We're to, he says we are to grow up into Christ in what way? 
every way. What way is that? Every way. Everything there is of Jesus to grow up in, we are to grow up in that. In, at the very least, in faith. Listen, how did Jesus go to the cross? How did He follow obedience to the Father? It's because He knew the Word and had faith and trust in what God had said about Himself. It's just as simple as that. I mean, certainly the work of the Holy Spirit through all of that, but, but He had unhindered trust and belief and faith in what God had said about Himself. What am I saying? He knew the Scriptures, and he believed them to be true. He loved them. He loved his Father as his Father was revealed in the Scriptures. So in faith, in knowledge, in unity, (coughs) and especially here in love, we are to grow up into Christ in every way. Let me say this next thought here. The growth has Christ as its goal. Let's not miss this. The goal of this growth is Christ. That we would display and enjoy even the fullness of Christ. Guys, the stress of the language here is on our progress and maturity towards Him, Jesus, as the goal. Together, Believers become more and more like their Lord so that they are fully and completely incorporated into Him. Does it make sense? They were more fully and incorporated into Him. How? As we become more and more like our Lord. How do we become more and more like our Lord? We grow in knowledge and faith. I mean, you can't become like an aspect of someone if you don't know what that aspect is. But I have a question here. If we're talking about this in the context of seeking, speaking the truth of love to others, what are you seeking as the growth goal for those around you? And obviously this has application even to yourself. What growth goals do you have for yourself? What is the goal for which you are moving your life towards? So the question would be, is that Jesus, if that's what we're supposed to be growing towards, or have you fancied some other version of Jesus? Both for yourself and for other people. But let's think for a second in thinking about other people. And and just understand this, the way you treat other people is probably the way you work inside your own heart. Okay, Very, lots of correlation going on there. Let me read to you this quote from a Famous monk from uh, Bardstown, Kentucky, all right? Well, he wasn't from Bardstown, Kentucky. He just spent lots of his time in Bardstown, Kentucky. Thomas Merton, he said this. The beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we only love the reflection of ourselves we find in them. Let me say that again. The beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we are only loving the reflection of ourselves we find in them. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna caveat this a little bit. He obviously says the beginning, which is a key word. <clears throat> but oftentimes, our love for others is motivated by our desire to make them into what we want them to be. And what is this again? This is just human cunning and deceitful schemes. This is very hurtful and confusing. It's very wind-tossing and battering. This goes with whether you're engaging a child, your children, another child, or you're engaging an adult child, or you're engaging a spouse, a pastor, or a friend. It's easy to develop an image of what you would like for them to look like. And if you look closely, it will probably be a reflection of your own pale glory. Here's what you need to understand. Even if you were to get someone to be an exact replication of your own glory, it would still be depressing. It would still let you down. At the end of the day, it still wouldn't be good enough to satisfy your soul because only one person's glory is good enough for that. It's the creator of the universe and his son Jesus and the blessed Holy Spirit. The person who is three in one and yet the same, yet different and distinct. And that's the only person that, can, that is worthy of, of, our, of our heart's desires. So it's easy to develop this. But instead, we should humbly and self-sacrificially love them, even including their filth and brokenness and dirtiness. Think about that. Whether it's someone that's three rows behind you or two rows in front of you, or it's your child. Should humbly and self-sacrifice. God, God didn't go like, oh, I, I, I love my, my child, you know, children, but you know, we kind of got to deal with this brokenness, you know, because you know, what, what's he do? He loves us, even knowing the brokenness that is going to be brought about by our own sinful desires. Now, sure, he hates the brokenness. He despises the, the unholiness. And, and obviously, but, but then what does he do? He devises a plan to deal with that. But understand, though, that Jesus didn't go, uh, you know, Peter, if you could just clean your feet off a little bit better, then I'll wash them for you. Jesus, what's he do? He gets down on his knees. This master teacher, Lord, guys, understand, creator of the universe, kneels down to wash their feet. And we don't want to give up a little bit of time for a brother or sister. Or we want them to look like us. We want them to look like us? Like, do we even understand that we're comparing ourselves to the creator and sustainer of the universe? Like, the audacity to think that our image is somehow good enough to want them to be like that compared to that. Compared to him. I, I, I struggle with this, okay? I do. It's just, to me, astounding that, that I would struggle with that. 
when you think about the difference in the images. Last thought underneath this one is that if, if he is the head, if Jesus is the head, then this implies seeking glad, joyful submission. Just a quick thought here. Again, this is just an implication, but let me propose the idea that most of us live each day however we want to until God puts up a roadblock or a detour sign. And then we who are at least somewhat spiritual will seek His guidance. But if we're going to be, the idea here, guys, is speaking the truth in love, which is growing based upon this presupposed idea of growing in the knowledge of this. So what is growing in the knowledge? You're seeking the will of the Father. You're seeking His desires. You're seeking His plans. You're not doing your plans and then waiting for God to impose them on you. If Jesus is the head, then we seek His plans, and we do that by growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. Does that make sense? Everybody good? Yeah, yeah? No? Okay. We grow in this way. We We seek the head. Listen, let me say this. If you understand what it means for Christ to be our head and that no longer Adam is our head, then I think we would regularly and intentionally seek the will of the head instead of waiting for His will to be imposed on us. If we understood what it means that Jesus is the head of our race and no longer Adam, we would go gladly, willingly, with intentionality and great effort and passion and pursuit after the will of our head. Because he is so much better than the first Adam. The first Adam did what? He led us to deceit. He led us to selfishness. He led us to pain. He led us to brokenness. And our hearts just follow suit. The second Adam led us to what? To redemption by his own blood. That's someone I want to know what his plan is. That's someone I want to know what his desires are. That's someone I want to submit my life to. Last big thought for this morning is this. I'm sorry, second to last big thought. We got a lot more to go. The one Christ is the source of our unified growth. The one Christ is is the source of our unified growth. All right, so look at verse 16. He says, from whom the whole body. From whom the whole body. So Jesus is the source of the growth of the body. Jesus is the source of the growth of the body. He says, from whom the whole body. From whom what? It's from whom is referring to Christ, who is the head. From the head, whom the whole body, he says, joined and held together by every joint. So we'll get to that in a second. But he doesn't only rule over the body, but he is the source of the body's growth. He is the source of our success. He supplies all that is necessary. Hear this. Jesus, as the head, supplies all that is necessary for the body's well-being, including its unity, nourishment, and progress. He's the source of everything that we need to do what He is calling us to do. Listen, husbands or 
aspiring husbands. This is where we're going in Ephesians. It's the husband is, is head of the household in, in an authority type sense. But what we're going to talk about is how the leadership in that is to be, in a way, this in your family. That you provide for their well-being, for their unity, for their nourishment, and their progress. That's a tall order. It is. All right, next thought. Unity and growing together is talked about here as a collective whole. Not just an individual growth. The focus is on the growth, it says, from whom the whole body joined and held together. The whole body joined and held together. He's not focusing on individuals becoming mature in Christ, however important that may be. (coughs) He says the whole body. Later he's going to talk about how it builds itself up. This is clearly affirming the corporate emphasis of this passage, this togetherness of this passage. Joined together. Held together. These are phrases that we see like in Colossians chapter 2. As one author said, it's not shapeless, but it's ordered and united, fitly framed and knit together. It's a whole body joined and held together. Next thought is this. Pastors are the conduits. So how is this going to happen? How is it going to be held together? How is it going to be put together? How does this happen? Here's how we're going to get into that. Pastors are the conduits through which Christ's divine source flows. And I know that sounds like mystical and crazy and weird. Okay, we're going to talk about this, all right? I don't want anyone accusing me of being some Christian mystic. Pastors are the conduits through which Christ's divine source flows. Divine energy, right? (laughs) I didn't realize how mystical this sounded when I wrote it. Divine energy is channeled by every supporting joint in the body. The joints, let's talk about this. Some of your Bibles might say ligaments. The joints make contact with other parts of the body and are the channels through which the nourishment flows from the head. Okay? So the question is, and I've already alluded to this, but who are the joints? Who are the joints? Are they the special ministers that were listed up here, the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, that, that group? Or is the joints all of the members of the body? Those are two questions. Which one is it? The answer depends on whether the phrase, you have to look at your Bibles, okay? You're not, it's not going to be up on the screen, you have to look at your Bibles. The answer depends on whether the phrase, when each part is working properly, do you see that? It depends on whether that phrase clarifies the preceding expression by every joint with which it is equipped, or if that phrase, when each part is working properly, is making an additional point with a broader reference to each member of the body. So that's the question. Which one is it? Here's what I think. 
Here's my interpretive decision. I think that when each part is working properly, is making an additional point. I think he's making an additional point. Here's why. So, so here's what I think. I think that the phrase joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped is referring to the particular ministers in the couple verses above rather than ordinary church members. And then I think that every part working is referring then to the body. Here's why. I think there's a chiastic structure in this passage. You know what a chiastic structure is? You have kind of point A, point B, point C, back to a repeat of point B, and then to a point A. If you, if, you can go look at this later. But if you look in chapter 4, he's going to start off with every member walking in a manner worthy. And then he's going to talk about these gifts these teachers and leaders given to the church, and he's going to talk about fullness of Christ. And then he's going to go back to these teachers, which I think is what he's referring to here with each joint, and then finally conclude in verse 16 or with this every members. I think of Paul is, Paul is, is very common in Greek literature, particularly uh, Koine Greek or Biblical Greek, where you get this, again, every member, then narrowed a little bit to the leaders in that body, ultimately the goal being Jesus and the fullness of him, back out to the every leader that is leading in the body, finally resulting at the every part of the body building itself up in love. So I think that's what he's doing. Okay? So I think that's why Paul here is referring to special ministers being the joints. I also think it makes sense in the general passage of what he's trying to teach here. He's trying to teach that, that the, the pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets are given as gifts to lead the body in accomplishing all that. So it makes sense that then the joints and the ligaments would be a part of leading every part to be working as it should be working and connecting those pieces. So, there you go. I think the pastors are the conduits through which Christ's divine source flows. And then lastly, each part must fulfill its role. If that's the case, then each part must fulfill its role. He says this, when each part is working properly. When each part is working properly. I mean, the question we should ask, each one of us should ask our own selves is, my part in the body, is it working properly? We should ask that question. That's a good question to ask. What we should also ask is, are our parts in the body working good together and what needs to be worked on and what needs to be fixed? And, and how am I helping my brothers and sisters fulfill their part in the body properly as defined by the image of God, not by yours? Right? So each part must fulfill. So both gifted ministers and gifted members have a part to play in the body's growth. Again, the ministers are represented by the joints which provide connections between the other parts of the body, providing this conduit through which the nourishment of Christ flows. That's what's happening right now. You understand that? Like Christ's divine nourishment for your soul is the exchange happening right now. I mean, assuming your heart's in the right place. This exchange where your soul is being nourished and filled 
And then what's going to happen? Then, Lord willing, in the days ahead or even after service today, that that nourishment will then flow from each member to other members in the body. You see a joint, a ligament going on. It's connecting that right now in this very moment. So the gifted members have their own distinct role to play in the well-being of the whole. Guys, this also means that the presence of gifted members, if, if there's an importance of every part working properly within the body, then what that does, that makes us dependent on one another and on the de- and dependent on Christians around us in the body utilizing his or her gifts for the growth of the body. And when that happens, when that happens, divine fullness is experienced. What do I mean by that? Meaning, experiencing the fullness of Christ. And, and like we've talked about before, like, that's a good thing, right? Like, I want that. You should want that. That happens as ministers are doing what God's called them to do, and each part of the body is doing what each part of the body has been equipped to do. And we do that. We get to experience this fullness together. Last big thought today is this. The measure for our maturity is the measure of our love. The measure for our maturity is the measure of our love. Let's read 15 and 16 to kind of wrap this up. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So every member working properly as they are guided by God's leaders makes the body grow. This is God's pattern for growth. The elders lead in the church, lead the church in the scriptures and in practical organization of the church, I would include in there. The people then, under the guidance of the joints, build each other up. Each part working properly. It's the body that makes you grow. Notice that was what's happening here. Don't miss this. A lot of people miss this. When each part's working properly, and you're in the midst of each part working properly, it makes all of us grow. So what is it not saying? This is always a good question to ask. What is the Scriptures not saying? He's not saying that on your own, apart from the body of Christ, doing whatever you want to, even reading your Bible and acting spiritual, can grow completely perfectly on your own. He's not saying that. He's saying that you must be a part of the body, and the body needs to be working properly. Each part needs to be working properly. And when that happens, it makes the body grow like it happens. It is an inevitable When the parts are working as they should, the growth happens. And we want to know why a lot of Christians don't grow. It's because they don't get this. 
But each one of us is built up in love by the body of Christ. And this is primarily through what? Speaking the truth in love. Every member doing the work of the ministry in love. One final sub-thought here is that this. The measure of our love is the measure of our maturity. So he says what in verse 16? Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Clearly, the whole body is involved in the process of building, not simply those who are leaders or who are special ministers, right? We talked about that. And we get that for the most part as a church. Right? We've talked about I've, I've been in churches where the ministers do all the ministry. And that's why those churches just struggle and they're frail and they're weak and a lot of times they amass great big crowds with a whole lot of, whole lot of zero substance. Because there's ministry is not happening like it should be happening. But here, clearly, the whole body is it's building itself up. Listen to that. It builds itself up in love. It's only in love that the body increases. It's only in love that true Christian ministry will contribute to the building of the body. And love is the criterion for an assessment of the church's true growth. If you want to ask the question, is, is the church healthy? Is the church growing? The question would be, what does our love look like for each other? When I ask that question, like I get scared. What does our love look like for each other? Guys, even the fullest demonstration of gifts and our using of our gifts has no spiritual value if love is lacking. Guys, the goal is not to build ourselves up here in the grand display of our gift using. Certainly that's a piece here. But the goal is that this gift using would build us up in love. But again, this isn't the fickle, careless, flippant, sentimental love that our culture is obsessed with. This is love that is born out of truth. This is love with which we were loved. Let's go back to John 13. This is a little bit later in the passage, or a little bit later in that chapter. Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Again, he's not talking about love for the world. He's talking about love within the disciples for other disciples. So what kind of love is this that is the measure of our maturity? Guys, in verse 14 of Ephesians, what do we see? We see that the idea of the world's love is the idea for personal gain. Deceitful schemes brought about by human cunning. This is all for personal gain. The world only knows how to love for selfish reasons. They love so they can get love back. This is not the love of the gospel. Guys, the kind of love that Jesus has in mind here is a love that led him to create us knowing it would necessitate him dying for us. You hear me? That's love. 
Listen, you know, having kids, uh, like, if I could roll back the clock before having kids, and knowing what was, because of the gospel, required of me, it would, it would make thinking through having kids tough, right? And we just have kids because that's just what we do. We have kids, and we want to love kids, and those kind of things. Or we bring kids into our lives. But if I'm serious about living out the gospel, then that means that, I mean, obviously, we're not God, but man and woman are creating a being, right? That's why God created it. You know, sorry if you have the kids, you have birds and the bees talk, so I'm not going to go any further than that. But, right, mom and daddy create baby. And then, what happens? Um, you should have created that baby knowing that what was required of you via the gospel was to lay down your life completely even knowing of their brokenness. Right? If we're going to mirror I mean I think a lot of us would probably think twice before having kids if we knew that's what we were required what was required of us. Now I, would, I think I'd still make the same decision. I just wouldn't have made it maybe so quickly. Would have had more weight to it. So a love that led him to humble himself and become like us in order to die for us. A love, a literal, literal, guys, self-sacrificing love. A literal self. We're not talking theoretical, like we can just kind of be cute and, you know, give up a couple things for a brother or sister. No, Jesus laid it all out there. Even to the point of death even to the point of bearing the wrath of God for our sins. This is the kind of love that we are to grow up in. This is the kind of love we are to grow up in. A humble, self-sacrificing love, both for our Savior and clearly for our brothers and sisters. I, I get it. It's easy to push blame here. It's easy to push blame. Say, well, so-and-so is not very loving. and So-and-so is not very loving. Just stop. Look at your own heart. Okay. Maybe you're just being really difficult to love. <laughs> but listen, the point's not even that. If you understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can love people. And you can love them in their brokenness. Jesus loved us in our brokenness. If Jesus in love bore the wrath for our sin, the least we can do is lay our lives down for each other. Think about that. Think about that. He didn't just lay his life down for us. He subjected himself to the full weight of the wrath of God for all of your sins that would have taken you all of eternity and never satisfyingly paid the price for. And he bore it all in a moment for you and for me. This is a love that doesn't seek one's own preferences. This is a love that doesn't seek one's own agenda. This is a love that doesn't seek one's own good. 
That's hard for us. We get asked to do something, and what do we immediately go to? Is it, is it for my good? Like, you asking me to do that? Is that for my good? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Is it for God's good? That's what matters. And if it's for God's good, then yes, it's for your good. Is it for God's good? So when we lay our lives down, these are the questions we're asking. Am I giving up my preferences? Am I giving up my agenda? And I want to encourage you too, guys. When we, we, we worked through this in 1 John, so I'm not going to rehash all of this. But the idea of laying your life down for your brother, a lot of us would say, oh yeah, sure, I'd take a bullet you know, for my brother over there. I'd jump in front of it. and you know, The reality is, is for most of us, that's not ever going to happen. The question is, how are you going to lay down your life for them tomorrow? Like, how are you going to lay down your life for them this afternoon? How are you going to lay your life down for them when we're tearing down this in here? What's that look like? When we're, each Sunday, we're tearing this down. What's that look like? Lay your life down. Does it look like seeking your plans and agenda for your own good? Or does it look like seeking what's good for everybody, for the body? What's that look like? See, it's, it's easy to talk about biblical things in theory. It's a lot harder. And guys, this is, if this is making you uncomfortable, man, the rest of Ephesians, it's going to be very similar to this, okay? All right, so just strap, strap your seatbelt on, okay? Because it's going to rock and roll from here. But it's harder when we start talking about practically every day. How do we do this? How do we practically work this out? How do we practically do this? That's what I'm saying, like, like to squeeze every ounce out of the teaching, out of the word of God that you're hearing. What's that look like? It takes time to actually flesh out practically, how do I live this out? It takes time to do that. It takes hours a week to do that and think through that. And, okay, so in this part of my life, what does it mean to lay down my life? For them, what does it mean to exemplify this to my kids? What does it mean to exemplify this to, to my pastors? What does it mean to exemplify this to my coworkers? Right? What does it mean to show them brotherly love for the body of Christ to my coworkers? What is the, if, we're, if, if we're to be known by our love for one another and the world's going to see that, then how do I help that be on display for my coworkers or for my kids or for my neighbors? How do I, how do, I do that? That takes time to think through those things. Guys, a lot, of un, a lot of guys interacting with the Scriptures week in and week out, growing in the knowledge of the Son of God, is not just gathering facts, but it's the, imp, the, um, the application of those pieces into life, and that takes time. It all takes time. It's just the way it is. So, Listen, do you want your family, your kids, your spouse to love Jesus? You want that? I do. Then show them how to love Jesus by demonstrating your love to the body. And lead them to do likewise. You want your coworkers to love Jesus? Then love the body like the one who loved you into the body. What your neighbors did, show them. 
Guys, Jesus wasn't merely washing dirty feet. He was foreshadowing the sacrifice of his life in order to wash his children of their sin. That's what he was doing. We do likewise as we self-sacrificially lay our lives down for each other, and get this, and wash each other with the life-giving truth of the Word. Jesus revealed in the Scriptures. We get to do the same thing that Jesus did. I mean, not in an ultimate sense, you get what I'm saying, but in a practical, outworking sense. He washes their feet, gets the grime off. He he humbles himself to do that, symbolizing the washing of their sin that's about to happen on the cross. And what do we get to do? We get to lay our lives down to humble ourselves, give preference to others, and then wash them with Jesus revealed in the Scriptures. Speak the truth in love. How do you speak the truth in love? Laying your life down. Knowing the Son of God. And leading your brothers and sisters to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That we would know Him and be like Him. So we speak the truth in love. We lay our lives down and we speak the truth to each other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time and the word today. Father, thank you for your marvelous work in showing us what this Love that we're building each other up into, Father. You've showed us this. And you're just calling us to live likewise. So, Father, I pray that we would ask and seek your Holy Spirit's guidance to to apply these truths and to live in light of these truths, that they they would become settled convictions. That speaking the truth and having to know the truth would become a, a settled conviction that I would not speak lies. And that I would know the truth so that I can bre- bless a brother or sister with the truth. And I would develop a settled conviction. And I would develop a settled conviction that, that all of this is done in love and compassion. And if I'm just loving an image of myself and someone else, I'm not loving them, I'm loving me. And I'm hating my brother or my sister because I am desiring something for them that is nothing compared to the glory that awaits them if they would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. But if I truly love them, I would seek the only image that is worthy of applaud and praise. And that is the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, may we, may we, Seek to build each other up in love. Father, for it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.